Hey y'all, this is Sam Leonard. I'm an integrated vascular surgery resident at McGovern Medical School. And I'm Callie Ferguson. I am the communication specialist at McGovern Medical School with the cardiothoracic and vascular surgery department. And today we present to you the podcast Deep in the Heart and Vascular of Texas, a podcast series on the topic of health as it relates to diagnosis and treatment of heart and vascular disease. We are recording from the Texas Medical Center at the University of Texas Health Science Center, Houston. Today we are joined by Drs. Sophia Khan-Makoid and Dr. Tom Wen, both of whom are surgeons with UT Health. If you could please introduce yourselves to our listeners. Uh, so I'm Sophia Khan-Makoid. I'm an assistant professor uh, in the Department of Cardiothoracic and Vascular Surgery. Uh, I'm Tom Wynn. Uh, I'm the Chief of Cardiac Surgery here at UT Houston McGovern Medical School. I'm also the Director of Lumen Release and Valve Surgery uh, here at our hospital system. At the time of this recording, there were over 940,000 reported cases and over 50,000 deaths caused by the virus in the U.S. We discussed their experiences in their practice as the virus has developed. I wanted to first start off talking about the comorbidities of the virus and who's more susceptible and who's at risk. I've seen a lot in the news that older populations, people with pre-existing conditions such as asthma, HIV, are more susceptible to getting the disease. So I was just wondering from your perspective and your experience what you've seen in I think what we've kind of seen is that patient populations at biggest risk, there are those patients that are have comorbidities, they are smokers, they have underlying lung disease, they have these chronic conditions. But the interesting thing about coronavirus that I found most interesting is that it's not, it's, it's not discriminatory. It's affecting young people, it's affecting old people, it's affecting people who are, are deemed to be what we would otherwise call healthy um, individuals. And that's, I think, the most interesting thing about this is that we don't have a real sense of who's really at risk. No, I think you're exactly right. And, and what we see in the literature and the data is that the folks that are at most risk of dying are those elderly. And, and that's what we see in the media, you know, you know, try to, if you're older and you have a, a compromised immune system, that's what you have to worry about uh, getting COVID. But I think that's a little bit of a disservice. And, and I think that's not a, a complete picture. Uh, as Dr. Khan alluded to, we know that 70% of people who are hospitalized are actually less than 65. And so a lot of us younger folks are actually at risk of getting it. We might not be as likely to die from it, but we still need to be very cautious and protective about potentially getting the virus. I think that's uh, something interesting I noticed at my hospital. So I work at Memorial Hermann, um, the Southeast Division. We'll do a survey of the ICU and you just look at the ICU patients and the number of patients that are under the age of 50 who are in our ICUs. And that was new for me to have seen there. You have to assume that in this time that they're likely, you know, suffering from COVID or some sort of, you know, ramification from that. And I think that's just definitely a, a paradigm shift that we've noticed in the last few weeks. Let me, let me ask a question. I see in the media, there's a distinct uh, distinction maybe between like two big cohorts. You see the patients that are hospitalized requiring mechanical uh, ventilation. And then this other group of patients that are hospitalized receiving some of their care, but they're not being mechanically ventilated. They're still breathing on their own. What, to, to your knowledge, are the care that these patients are receiving in the hospital if it's not mechanical ventilation? Why are these patients requiring hospitalization? And I'll, I'll add a third cohort. There's those who are COVID positive and sent home in quarantine, right? I think it really depends on the severity of the illness. You know, So those who have a severe, severe illness, then they, um, they might require uh, mechanical ventilation and worst case scenario, ECMO. And that's a little bit of a debatable topic as well. 
I think most of the time you can get away with treating these patients with man-supportive therapy uh, and then kind of get them through the hump. And a lot of times you can take care of the patient by just having to go home and quarantining uh, and, and really just, you know, get over the, the flu, the immune system, take care of the virus. Something interesting that I read, preliminary reports are saying that it's really come down to how your immune system responds to once you get the virus. Mm-hmm. And that's actually leading to this kind of range of pathologies, how you respond to the virus and how your immune system is attacking the virus is leading to this very, very like large range of you know, people who are walking around completely asymptomatic to people who are in the ICUs having to be, you know, put prone, which is having to lay on their stomach with a breathing tube in and, you know, constantly having that kind of care. But no one, I don't think, knows just quite yet as to why, you know, two people could have such varying, you know, degrees of disease. But I but also that, that, you know, if you have the disease, it's important to know that you have it. Uh-huh. So if you think that you might be symptomatic and you have a fever or a cough that's persistent, it's important to know and um, uh, so that you can prevent spreading the virus to other people. And these patients that are at home that either have been told they have COVID or, or high likelihood of COVID, what recommendations would you give to them to when to seek kind of a higher level of medical care? I think the best thing you can do right now is actually call. They have, I think, hotlines that you can actually call and tell people what their your symptoms are, and they kind of can help guide you into which direction you should go. I think that's kind of where telemedicine has been playing a really big role in this, and it's, I think kind of changed the paradigm a little bit as well. Uh, yeah, it sounds like it's still your recommendation that if a patient's at all concerned, they should reach out to, to you or to the, one of the hotlines, go to the emergency room, and don't let the fear of the COVID pandemic prevent them from seeking care. Right, absolutely. And then a, kind of a, a random aside, I've noticed on... On Twitter, a lot of the medical Twitter um, physicians from all over the country are commenting on how their patients, now that they have reduced work hours and they're kind of quarantined their home, are taking a more active interest in their own health care, those that are not related to COVID but are just at home. Have you seen that in your patient population and all our patients kind of taking a, a just a stronger interest in their own health? I think it's a little early to tell. You know, I think the irony and the paradox for myself is, you know, with the, with the isolation and social distancing, I think I... Uh, been a little bit less active. It's tough, right? Because as patients out there, we can't really go outside and, and go to the gym or we can't, you know, uh, go to the park as most folks do uh, during normal times. I read an article that said there was a higher rate of men dying from COVID-19 than women. Do you have any thoughts on that and why that might, why that might be? I think this is it's pretty fascinating. You know, there's a lot of differences, obvious differences between men and women. And we know that from a medical standpoint, um, sometimes there are big gender differences. And what we've seen uh, at this very objective data is a difference in mortality between men and women. Uh, it comes from a Chinese study. And uh, from the Chinese study, the mortality from men is roughly 2.8%. And in women, it's 1.7%. It's almost two times as much. Even in Italy, the Italian ICUs, roughly 82% of the people in the ICU are men. Uh, I have very good friends in New York, and in talking to them, uh, there definitely are a lot more men. I guess the question is, why is that the case? And I don't think we really know the answer to that. I think there are a lot of kind of hypotheses out there. Certainly, some think that maybe women, their estrogen it could be a little bit protective. You know, perhaps men are a little more cavalier and, and more uh, reckless about their personal health, and they definitely smoke more than women, and they, they take more, they drink more alcohol, and that might put them uh, a little bit uh, more at risk. Perhaps women have a better immune system, right? We know that the 
that extra chromosome might be a protective factor. We don't know. But, but you know, we could say that objectively, that's sort of what we see out there in the published literature uh, and even anecdotally across the country. I don't think anyone knows a real good answer why that's the case. I think we've proven in, very, in vascular disease and cardiovascular disease that men and women's biology are inherently different and they respond differently to diseases. And like Dr. Wynn was saying is we don't know if that men are at baseline, just a little bit unhe- more unhealthy because they've been smoking longer, or do they have more chronic conditions than women um, do, or are men showing up to it later in their disease progression? Are they, you know, more stubborn to go to the hospital? Are women more likely to go to the hospital? And truthfully, a lot of this is going to take a lot of, you know, a lot of work is going to come from our research cohorts and you know, our academicians who are going to put that academic rigor to look at all these confounding factors, whether it be their comorbidities, their demographics, you know, where they live, uh, their latency period of when they actually got the disease to when they showed up for treatment. And until all those things have really been fleshed out, I don't think anybody can make other than observational kind of statements. And that's kind of where we are right now, that this is, these are facts, men are dying more than women. And what's, what's also fascinating is that with cardiovascular disease, it's actually the other way around. We know that um, women who have cardiovascular disease <clears throat> tend to die more than men. So mm-hmm. it's it's an interesting kind of paradox. But, yeah. um, do, do either of you have a group or a cohort of patients that um, maybe fall in this kind of strange in between where you'd like to be operating on them to, to kind of alleviate symptoms or to advance their health, but technically don't meet this urgent or emergent category to uh, proceed to the operation? No, I guess we have a lot of, a lot of yeah. patients that it's right right at that gray area, right? And I guess what I worry about now is, you know, all these patients, it's not like operations, you know, are people don't need operations anymore. We're just delaying it. And then when the, the gates open again, then we're, you know, we're going to have a backlog of, of two or maybe three months of patients that need operations. And it's our responsibility as healthcare providers to try to find an efficient way to navigate through that and, and triage the patients appropriately so that the, the sick patients get the operations that they need. I think navigating that as a new surgeon has also been very difficult because I don't know how long the patient with a small toe ulcer can make it before it turns into you know a really big ulcer that I missed. So I find myself thinking and perseverating, like, can this go? Can this not? So I've actually reached out to mentors and some of my more senior partners have seen things that I've, you know, scheduled in the next few days and have told me, Hey, you know, schedule them for a clinic visit in two weeks and see how they're doing or give them a phone call. I think for younger surgeons out there or younger docs are out there, like really rely on your resources and your mentors out there. And even, even senior partners should rely on other senior partners and even senior partners <laughs> should, you know, uh, rely on their younger partners to, for advice as well. So and it may be a little early uh, to, you know, to harvest all the data. Have either of you, as a vascular surgeon and a cardiac surgeon, seen any repercussions from, in these COVID patients, uh, cardiac or vascular-wise? Are there, is there increased risk of dissection or aneurysm formation? You know, that, that's actually really interesting. And, and there's kind of a very informal study poll being conducted across the country right now. You know, we're a very busy aortic program. We do a lot of dissections, type A aortic dissections here. And we have seen a significant drop in the aortic sections uh, here at our hospital and across the country, anecdotally. So the question is, is it a real difference or are people just not coming to the hospital more? I can tell you that, you know, folks coming to the operating room, there's certainly less people getting aortic dissection surgery than there was pre-COVID era. I haven't really seen too much of a difference yet in the vascular population. 
and, and I think it's important too that you know right now we're in this COVID era and we're very reluctant for folks to come to the hospital. But at the end of the day, uh, I think we need to implore for everybody out there: if you're sick and you need care, you have to come to the hospitals. For those of you listening, you know, don't just say, "Oh, I have. I don't want to go to the ER." You know, my foot pain may get better tomorrow. That's the best part about the telemedicine is you can call, talk to your, you know, your surgeons. There's a lot of stuff that we can pseudo diagnose via just a phone call. We are still here. We're still covering the hospital 24-7 and we're still working to keep patients safe, COVID positive or otherwise. That's what we kind of all went into this for. And then Dr. Wynn, I know you just hosted the uh, Global COVID Grand Rounds for CTS attended by multiple surgeons across the country, healthcare staff, internists. What were some of the biggest takeaways for both healthcare staff and just patients at home um, from that? I think one of the the biggest takeaways is probably the best way to prevent uh, healthcare workers from getting COVID is protection, right? And, you know, we are at the front line and, you know, we are the place that people go to when they get sick, right? And so it's important for us to uh, have and wear adequate adequate protection to not only protect ourselves, but to protect those around us, uh, and as well as, uh, in particular, perhaps uh, our family members as well. The virus has affected their clinical practice at UT Physicians and surgical practice in the operating room at Memorial Hermann, but it has also contributed to modifications in their personal lives. We asked them about their new normal and what these changes mean moving forward, both professionally and personally. Well, let me ask, you guys are both very, uh, very, very busy surgeons, and with all the mandates out from the Surgeon General and Governor of Texas to limit elective surgeries, how have you been filling your kind of extra time, if so, if you have any, uh, in the last couple of weeks? I've still had reasons to go to the hospital. I still have a few inpatients that are there that I need to take care of, or surgeries that were kind of deemed more on the urgent side, things that like patients with, for me, patients who had ischemic ulcers or... Um, reasons that they needed to have surgery kind of during this this period. We've done some telemedicine telemedicine with um, our patients via clinic visits that we've done that way. I've been able to write more, so I've been working on some research in my quote-unquote free time reading. I've done a lot more reading. You know, it's interesting. I think I'm not sure if I have more free time. I think it's just shifted to what mm-hmm. I do instead of being in the, in the operating room to doing other things. And I find myself a lot more involved with, uh, with conferences and and meeting, especially now, trying to strategize in ways to, to address COVID. I think, I think for that said, I, I think I do have a little bit more time to reflect and kind of mental isolation time than than before. And it is kind of nice to kind of reflect and and evaluate your priorities a little bit. I think in the end, one of the things that kind of maybe a potential silver lining uh, uh, after you know the COVID is that it kind of makes you reevaluate your priorities a little bit, right? And when you have so many so much crazy stuff going on in the world. And then before COVID, you're focusing on, okay, well, I need to, I don't know, whatever that may be, might be, X, Y, or Z. And then now during the midst of everything, you realize that X, Y, Z really wasn't that important, right? And you're filling up with your time with all these little, little things that really, you know, really wasn't important in the grand scheme of things. And so I think that's kind of helped me kind of reevaluate, reevaluate my priorities a little bit. When we're off reprioritizing everything, do you think there's also going to be a change culturally? Culturally, I will have to say that I've been part of more Zoom events than um, ever before. And if there's anything that good that can come from this, it's I think the interpersonal connections that have been kind of like very vibrant, and especially in my life. So my 
for people who don't know, I'm actually from the Northeast and not Northeast Texas. I'm actually from the Northeast of the country. So <laughs> I grew up in the New Jersey, Philadelphia region. That's where my family is. And I've had more interactions with them via Zoom phone calls um, and being able to spend, you know, just 30 minutes seeing them. It's been, you know, great. And I'm hoping that we continue to do things like that um, and have these Zoom birthdays, uh, my sister-in-law's wedding had to unfortunately be postponed because of all this that was happening. And so we all got on a Zoom phone call and, you know, celebrated in whatever way that we could. We all drank champagne. We dressed up and it was it was really great. And, you know, her wedding's going to be amazing. But even for that little moment of just being able to share in that together, um, I really hope that people continue to use social media and Zoom and Skype and Facebook portal and whatever else, Instagram, whatever else there is to stay connected with each other, you know, after Corona, the, the hope to come out of this. I think one unfortunate thing that would probably uh, come out of this is that, you know, I think a lot of interaction is kind of touching and, and, and physical contact, right? And, and you know, I'm a handshaker and I'm a hugger. But I, I think after this, mm -hmm. uh, to a certain extent, we're going to be more reluctant to shake people's hands and to hug. You know, it's interesting, too, because some cultures don't do that. You might feel a lot yeah. um, Dr. Khan, but, you know, some cultures don't because they have a history of, of uh, kind of high infection rates and whatnot. So, so the greetings are more either bowing or right. some kind of hand gesture and whatnot, you know, and, and intuitively that makes sense. Um, but one thing I've always kind of appreciated about our, our culture, we're very hands-on, you know, a nice good handshake or, uh, or a nice hug yeah. it goes a long way. And I think there's going to be probably a little bit less of that. Um, after all this settles. Yeah. I'm a hugger too. Okay. I mean, I am, I am the person who, when my patient's having a good day, I want to give them a hug. When my patient's having a bad day, I want to give them a hug. And it's hard. It's hard when you give someone good news or bad news and you can't share that with, you know, a hug or a handshake or it's, it's been difficult. That's interesting you say that because I feel like sometimes take for granted that human interaction, but now I'm like, oh, that's actually really important. Yeah, like I yeah. need that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I need that connection. So even though we do have Zoom and WebEx and all mm -hmm. of these great platforms to stay connected, right. I still find myself like reaching for some sort of mm -hmm. like human. Interaction. Right. I mean, you don't realize you don't realize how much you miss it until it's gone, right? Yes. Or just kind of walking the hallway and just mm -hmm. being in a, you know around a bunch of strangers, mm -hmm. right? I mean, and and them not being six feet away. Yeah, I was going to ask. You mentioned how right now there's there's some downtime and you're operating um, in those urgent and emergency situations and kind of postponing anything that can be. Do you find yourself kind of in the eye of the storm? Are you preparing yourself for this huge influx of where you're in the OR, no no downtime? So yes, I I, I do think that that once we start opening up again, we do have a, a, a fairly large backlog of cases and patients that need operations. I definitely anticipate and expect our volume to go up significantly. The art is to try to balance that with available resources mm -hmm. and make sure that we're able to do it and do it in a, in a balanced way so that people aren't getting burnt out, but also be able to triage the patients appropriately to make sure we're operating on uh, the sicker patients first. But hands, hands down, I, I definitely, once all this settles, you know, we have a lot of patients out there that we haven't been operating on the past couple of months that need operations. So we need to take care of them. I mean, some people have talked about opening up different time slots or extending ORs to Saturday. And I think people will figure out how we incorporate that. Well, I'm sure you both are bombarded with emails from hospital administrations and colleagues about new COVID data. I mean, we have the news 
for, for people at home, what is a good resource that they can turn to for general kind of updates on the coronavirus situation? I mean, for me, um, I am in that millennial generation. So a lot of things that we see are on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. And, and you know, I think the best knowledge that, you know, what I'm really looking for, like facts, I've been looking at the CDC and the NIH and WHO, and those are kind of where I'm getting like my hard and fast like facts from. And then I'm using my Instagram for watching really cool TikTok videos of people <laughs> doing things. But other than that, you know, try not to use it as my main news source. I think it's just you don't know where the you can't vet that source without something else. So I've been using kind of our government resources. You know, it's interesting. I agree. And I think that's the, the, the right response to say that folks should rely on these established news sources. But I have to admit, I think, you know, social media has really kind of changed things up and upside down a little bit. And the reason why I say that is, is news can travel so much faster mm-hmm. via social media. And in a situation like this where we don't have any good data, we don't, everything is just kind of anecdotal. We're kind of guessing we could probably get the best firsthand data through social media. And, um, you know, for kind of an example, a little bit unrelated example is, you know, I attend a lot of meetings and conferences, but sometimes I'll find out about, you know, late breaking trials and whatnot through social media faster because I have a colleague or not even a colleague, someone else in another room from another, you know, that's originally from another country might have posted something on social media and that gets magnified. And before you know it, I'll kind of hit my feed and I'll see it, you know, seconds after Mm -hmm. it happened and you see it. It, not only the details of it, you'll see the slides and who's mm-hmm. there and everything. So it can happen pretty fast. But but you're exactly right, Dr. Khan. I think you know there's a certain element of having to vet the content to make sure you know where it's coming from. You know, I think there is you know some potential kind of you know fake news out there, yeah. fake, fake data out there. But but you know the, the power of social media is it, you can get content and information pretty darn. So can we expect you and Dr. Khan to be making a TikTok video sometime? <laughs> I've seen some really great TikTok videos um, for people that have just kind of tried to find uplifting ways sure. of uh, embracing mm-hmm. all this. Um, one at a, a friend of mine is at Jefferson and they did a TikTok where everyone was in their PPE and they did like an organized dance. Um, and it was incredible because it was just like it was in that moment where they just people just needed something, a reason to smile. Has your experience with COVID-19 crisis changed your perspective on healthcare and the care for patients? And what, if anything, has changed in your practice and time in the hospital? I think I think one of the biggest things is that um, it's made me really kind of proud of our healthcare system. You know, we're, we're someone at war against this invisible en- enemy. And I have to admit, I have never heard a complaint from any of our healthcare workers from the top down. So from the leadership to the doctors, to the nurses, to the staff, and we're all here, right? And if anything, it's shown me that side of, of kind of humankind and, and, and people, and, and they're willing to help and go out there and do whatever they can. So I, that's, that's made me really kind of proud and, uh, of, of healthcare workers during this time. Yeah, I agree. Uh, just seeing people willing to lend a hand uh, in every you know, direction, whether it be go pick up groceries or, you know, People that are not, have been out of clinical duties for a long time and they're in administrative things. We've developed intubation teams and line service teams, and people are offering to cover other hospitals. And I really, really do think that this has shown a different side of humanity, where everyone has just, we've everyone's just lifted each other up, and we're lifting the world together. It's it's just a very enlightening side of humanity.
We had a really good conversation with Dr. Bila Patel and Dr. Charles Miller, but Dr. Patel made a really great comment about how they're in this like planning phase. They've been planning for weeks now on, on what to do uh, once COVID-19 hits Houston and then the implementation of everything and then the recovery after that. And she made a really great point about how they, they have their healthcare providers and workers ready, but then they also have everyone on the sideline like ready to jump in whenever they're needed and overly willing to. So I love that. That yeah. it's like that whole togetherness and supportiveness of, of the system and of each other. Your thoughts on the overall impact of the pandemic of COVID nineteen on the healthcare industry and academic medicine. You know, I think I think what meta, what COVID has taught us is that uh, we can do a lot of things um, virtually and not have to physically be there. And I anticipate a huge increase in, in telemedicine. I think the digital sphere of medicine is going to really increase like dramatically with this. I mean, people can do, you know, we can give a lecture series on WebEx and, you know, people that live in New York City or Seattle or wherever they can watch it and, you know, they can share what they're doing there. And I think there's going to, it's going to change to like so much more collaboration. Any messages you have for our listeners at home? My thing is just a, a big thank you to everyone. And that goes out to everyone. It's not healthcare workers, policemen, firemen, postal workers, people that work at the grocery stores, janitorial staff. Everyone is doing their part. Even if you feel like you're not doing anything, you feel like you can't help by staying home, you are doing so much more than you will ever imagine. I think the best thing we, we can do is social distancing. I, I think it's pretty clear the data shows that that's the best way to prevent uh, the disease pro- uh, transgression and progression. We got to um, to wash our hands and, and wash it frequently and wash for at least 20 seconds. And the last thing is, as you alluded to, uh, Kelly, is just, just appreciate the things that you might not have appreciated before. And it shouldn't have to take a COVID epidemic or pandemic for us to realize you know, kind of important things in our lives. Really great points you both bring. And thank you so much to Dr. Khan Mekoid and Dr. Wynn for sharing your perspectives and experiences as we all work together to overcome the COVID-19 pandemic. And to our listeners, be sure to check out other episodes of Deep in the Heart and Vascular of Texas. Be sure to wash your hands and thank you for listening.